Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, episode 32, coming to you live from Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Boy, it feels so good to be back recording in person. In a few moments, we'll welcome actor, director, and set carpenter extraordinaire Gary Fetterplace to the show. Without Gary, and I think there's a lot of people in Kitsap who will agree with that, our local theater scene just wouldn't be the same. Oh, that's exactly right. And things are finally starting to open up, thankfully. I saw my first show last weekend at the theater where Greg and I first shared the stage and where probably met Gary, and uh, he <laughs> serves on the board of directors at Bremerton Community Theater. The show was Shout, the Mod Musical, featuring five extremely talented local ladies celebrating song, dance, and humor. Plenty of humor from the 1960s. Shout plays Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays through June 27th, and with social distancing restrictions, their limited seating goes quickly. So jump online at bctshows.com and reserve tickets for Shout, their swinging 60s musical sensation. Shout's directed by Rana Tan, production coordinator for BCT, and Rana was kind enough to join us for our first episode of our new segment, Get to Know Your Theater, where Greg and I give you a literal behind-the-scenes look at local theaters, their history, and what the future holds for them post-COVID. Visit our YouTube channel for our interview with Rana and learn more about BCT, a, a true local gem. And watch our channel throughout the summer for more episodes of Get to Know a Theater. And another local theater Greg and I mention frequently is, of course, the historic Roxy, also in Bremerton. Thanks to everyone who came out for their second installment of Movies of the Decade, showing of for the 1950s Rebel Without a Cause. Our friend Jeremy Arnold provided an excellent introduction, as always, and we hope you enjoyed seeing this classic on the big screen as it was intended to be seen. Mark your calendars for Saturday, June 26th, when we'll celebrate the 60s with The Graduate, directed by Mike Nichols and starring Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman. We hit the stage at 6.30 to get the show started, and Jeremy will be back virtually with another insightful introduction. Visit RoxyBremerton.org to buy tickets, and while you're there, make sure to pick up tickets for Lebowski Fest, rolling into the Roxy tomorrow, Saturday, June 12th. It's going to be more fun than bowling in the semis, and that's not just like my opinion, man. There will be a costume contest, trivia, photo booth, drink specials, and white Russians. <coughs> Caucasians galore. Careful, man, there's a beverage here. So grab your marmot and your green nail polish and join us at 7 p.m. And if you love making movies as much as watching them, make sure to submit your entry into the 2021 West Sound Film Festival, being held this year August 6th through 8th. Submissions are open now and will be accepted through the end of June. Visit our YouTube channel for an interview with festival director Amy Cool. And for more info and to submit your project, visit westsoundfilmfestival.com. And if you're even slightly active in the West Sound theater film scene, more than likely you've worked with or at least benefited from the skills of our friend and guest today, Gary Fetterplace. Gary is an active local actor, producer, scene designer, and set builder who grew up and got his start in theater in England and attended the Italian Conti Stage School, previously attended by his professional stage mom. His first professional stage appearance was at the London Palladium at the tender age of 11 with further appearances in London and on TV. Gary first appeared in the U.S. in Jesus Christ Superstar at Bremerton Community Theater in 2004, and he has since appeared in nearly all the local theaters in over 75 productions either on stage or behind the scenes. Gary has also acted or been involved in nearly every Shakespeare production in the county since 2007. His first foray into producing and directing was in 2011 during the inauguration performances of BCT's RBS Hall. Since then, he has added his extensive carpentry and design skills to the local theater scene, most frequently at Bremerton Community Theater, Bainbridge Performing Arts, and Western Washington Center for the Arts, assisting with set design and building, including the five staircases and wraparound balcony 
of BCT's Romeo and Juliet, which was awarded the best set design by the Kitsap Sun newspaper for the 2015-16 season. He's currently president of the Lesser Known Players and has served as trustee and treasurer for BCT since 2009. Gary. Welcome well, to the show. Welcome to the show. Our first live guest oh, after quarantine. <laughs> yeah, feels good to be here. First live guest. That's yeah. great. That's right. And and what we traditionally do with our live guests is we like to share a cocktail. As if any listeners to the show know that uh, cocktails are right up there among uh, well, once in a kind while. of our standard operating uh, stuff. So this cocktail we're drinking tonight is called Gary's Pink Thingy. Thank you very much. Knowing you, Gary, there has to be a story behind this. Uh, so the drink is vodka, Chambord. And Sprite, Chambord, if, if you're not familiar, is raspberry liqueur. So we'll have the recipe and, and the, the ingredients in our show notes. But tell us, Gary, a little bit about this drink. Um, it was a complete fluke. It came about after a birthday party. Somebody had given uh, a, a, this bottle to me. I had no idea what it was. Sat on the shelf for a few months. And then uh, one day got it out and uh, started fooling with it. What have we got in the cupboard? Uh, all I had was vodka. And some Sprite. That works. Right. And there we have it. It is It is pink. It's got kind of a rosé wine color to it, yep. yeah. uh, which is really nice. And I'll tell you what, this is a good summertime drink. For sure. So if you're looking for something to drink this summer to cool off, Gary's Pink Thingy. Oh, thank you. All right. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> mm-hmm. The perfect summer drink. <clears throat> Definitely. Yeah. And I think that, uh, the, you know, all that was left was vodka and Sprite. That's probably the start of a lot of great stories, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Gary, as we just heard in your bio, theater is in your blood. You've been acting since you were a child. You were also trained classically at the same school your uh, actress mother attended, and you appeared at the London Palladium, no pressure, at age 11, <laughs> yeah, and then off to TV. So yeah. <laughs> was it always expected that you'd end up on stage, or was there a moment that you realized, this is, this is for me? Um, no, I'm, you know, as I was growing up, I was, uh, you know, dancing to music at home, and my mum said, oh, I think you need to go to dance class, you know. I think it was always, she always thought, yes, I'm going to push my kids through through the theatre. And um, so I, my first role was uh, when I was eight and my mum was directing and my dad did the set and the technical for a little local production of uh, The Miracle Worker, Helen Keller. And I played, um, I think I was actually just a ghost. Uh, I think it was the dead brother, the crippled dead brother. And I came on in the background there. Um, had no lines, <laughs> which was great, <laughs> and uh, that was it. And then, uh, then I, I attended some dance classes, and a couple of couple of three years later, my mum phoned home to say, uh, "Hey, boys, that's me and my brother, younger brother. Uh, my agent is uh, asking for for young children for a pantomime at Christmas in London. Who wants to do it?" And uh, I put my hand up. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. The, the rest is, and that was, is at the, really, yeah. that was at the London Palladium. And yeah, so uh, there was one particular school that provided all the children for the uh, the London Palladium um, pantomimes at Christmas, and it was the Peggy O'Farrell um, Stage School in, in East London. So I had to go along there, gave a little audition. Cute little boy with blonde hair, geez, you know, um, was, was in. And uh, then they sized me up for a uniform. <laughs> uh, so we all used to have to have, you know, full uniforms. Um, as they took us around Soho and such places, <laughs> because London Palladium is right on the corner of uh, you know uh, that particular area. But uh, yeah, that's how we started. And that was a fa- fantastic experience. Uh, yeah, you couldn't have wanted more. And uh, I just remember being in the auditorium during rehearsals there, just sitting uh, in the dead silence in probably the third or fourth row from the stage, 
and it just felt like home. It was this strange, odd feeling that this is where you're meant to be, you know. And that wasn't even on the stage, that was just being in the auditorium. It was just, yeah, some some odd feeling that you get. Or maybe some past life thing, maybe, I don't know. Maybe, the universe maybe, lined up. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> well, you've got a unique perspective, as opposed to a lot of folks uh, locally, having acted both in England and America. Now, growing up, I think we have sometimes a, a preconceived notion of what theater in the UK is like, or, you know, versus theater in uh, America. What do you see as as kind of the differences? Are there are there differences, and, and if so, um, certainly from the amateur point of view, um, we, we don't have this amateur scene uh, that you have here in America. Hmm. Mostly, um, it's all professional theatres, or at least semi-professional. the The local stuff is what they would call am dram, and it's normally pretty bad. It's it is truly not very talented people trying to do put on a show in the local hall. And that's kind of the the only kind of um, you know community theatre as such. Um, it's changed a little bit in the last twenty years or so, but uh, certainly twenty thirty years ago when I was there, yeah, there wasn't much of a scene. I I couldn't believe it when I came here to Kitsap County, and you know there was eight or nine uh, local theatres, and then I I went to my first audition at uh, Brems Community Theatre. And there we are. It's actually a real theatre, you know, yeah. nearly two hundred seats, a fly system, and and all the amenities inside the building also, you know. So it, it was, you know, the real thing. So I was quite quite impressed by that. And we we don't really have that kind of thing there in the U- UK. It's interesting. I think maybe I don't want to say you you lucked out by coming to Kitsap. I remember growing up in Central Pennsylvania. We didn't have a theatre community. It was high school. It was high school theatre. Right. And otherwise, there was really nothing that uh, I was aware of. So I think Kitsap is just uniquely situated to support so many of these these local theaters. You mentioned Amdram. Is that like amateur drama? Yeah, amateur dramatics. Yeah, it'd be the local amateur dramatic society, which is, you know, typical in the local church hall or um, whatever. And uh, yeah, the pretty low level uh, productions. As a child in Britain, would you would it just be through the school then? Yeah, there'd be drama school, programs in like school, middle schools. And... Yeah, there's certainly uh, plenty of school um, mm. things going on. Okay, and uh, and things have changed in the last twenty years. Um, you know, I did find out that there, there was actually a, a nice local group that were doing uh, a true community theatre uh, with children productions and so forth. So things have changed a little bit, uh, but uh, you know, in general, it was much much more on the professional and semi professional productions. And certainly that's what my mother was doing in the 70s. And that was a large theatre in our local town. Had a, it was a 900-seater, a bit like the Admiral Theatre. And it was productions there. And some of the people were actually getting paid to be in the production. Uh, so it was community theatre and or but semi-professional. Yeah, I know that all, a lot of the touring groups from Broadway go to the UK. And there's, there, that has their own, they have their own professional group where you have the companies in various theatres around London. Is that... Something that's grown over the years too, or has that always just kind of been there? Where you've had kind of a, an overseas "quote unquote" Broadway presence. Um, there'd always be touring um, groups. So yeah, um, our local town um, and our local theatre, uh, nine hundred seater, a bit like the Admiral Theatre, uh, would have touring visits from various national tours or international mm-hmm. tours. Uh, but then they would also put on productions with semi-professionals and local mm. uh, talent, and that would be about the the going thing that would be the only um, outlet 
yeah, as you say, here in Kitsap County, it's just incredible that there are lots of small little theatre groups that are able to, to function and uh, provide an outlet for people. So you came to the U.S. as an adult, obviously. Have you noticed any differences in the way that actors are trained? Like, say, in, in London, is it a little bit more classical, a little more Shakespearean? Uh, in the U.S., uh, maybe? No, I'd say not. Um, really? Yeah, no, I mean, they kind of um, probably stay away from Shakespeare. Really? Yeah, yeah, because there's... It's overdone? It's overdone. It's, gotcha. Yeah, it's certainly, you know... Um, so it's novel over here. Yeah, it's exactly. It's not there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's with this guy? So, yeah, so it's very much... They're much more into... I mean, particularly in London, because it's so cosmopolitan. Um, you, know, right. it's, you know, there are so many outlets and theatre groups doing all kind anything you can think of they're they're putting that show on you know and mm. you, you you can't think of there aren't enough you know and seattle can uh has a, a similar kind of scene like that with lots of little tiny little theatres doing you know stuff that are out of this you know, the, the mainstream which is similar to the the lesser known players uh on Bainbridge <laughs> island <laughs> right <laughs> so at, by day you're a, you're now a professional home inspector now, I, I got a little inkling of maybe where the, the hands-on stuff came from, if your dad was building sets as well uh, when you were a child. But when did you first develop uh, an interest in working with your hands and the building arts and started uh, becoming interested in, in scene design? Was it? Uh, well, well I, was, I was a home inspector. Um, uh, well, it's, that was my first business that I started here in the U.S. And then people kept asking me, um, can I recommend someone to do the fixes that I'd you know, uh, reported on? And I would re- recommend some people and then they would let them down or <laughs> overcharge them or not show up. And uh, people were then pressing me to, can't you just do it, Gary? We, we want to hire you. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, my goodness. Uh, and that's when I started in uh, 2006, um, Dr. Watson. So my home inspection business was Shawlook Homes. <laughs> and my contracting business then became Dr. Watson. And, I love it. Um, that, that's the history of, of that. Um, so, yeah. And to follow on that question, how did I then uh, decide to get involved with set building? I, I could see what they were doing <laughs> during a, a particular production at BCT. We were doing Noises Off. And I don't know if you know that show, but there's a, um, a two-story set that completely turns around on stage. Oh, wow. Um, so the second act, you see everything uh, behind the scenes of what's going on. Anyway, during the rehearsals and uh, building that particular set, and, and it had been designed very well and uh, generally put together very well, and then they were adding various other things to the staircases, like the handrails and things, particularly the back side of the set, and they were appallingly unsafe. Yeah. And I, as an actor, had to then actually be on those stairs with those handrails. <laughs> so self-preservation, and, really. And <laughs> indeed, it was kind of like, this is not acceptable. And I'm like, I, um, I need to change this. Have at it, Gary. So I was like, oh, gee. So now I've got to do my own stuff, you know. And that's really how I then started getting hands-on, and I basically just taught myself, you know, basic carpentry and, and building. And, I, I, you know, and I had a broad knowledge of building already. Being a, a building inspector, you would hope I would have sure. some broad knowledge. <laughs> and I've been in the building industry all my life anyway, so, um, you know, that, that came with it. And, uh, and then it was a few years later then um, when we were – building the RBS Hall and uh, suddenly, right, okay, what's going to go on? What's going to happen and who's going to do it? And I was working with Bob Montgomery, Mm -hmm. um, the father of the theatre at that time, mainly because nobody else actually wanted to work with him. (laughs) (laughs) I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So I said, yeah, I'll direct that first show. 
right, so are we building anything for it? And Bob said, no, we're not doing anything. We're not, no, it's got to be rough, rough, rough. And I'm like, oh, I don't like the sound of that. Uh-oh. What show was it? <laughs> uh, Box and Cox. Oh, really? Indeed. All oh, right. Uh, so, at WWC, so, yeah. so it's the, the 10th anniversary of, uh, of uh, the RBS Hall, and here we are at WWCA, uh, just about to start Box and Cox again. Yeah, yeah, and, ten, and, and, and a virtual on. option as well. It's pretty exciting. We just yeah. announced today, so fun stuff happening. So then, and really following up on that, something Greg and I learned in our interview with Rana at BCT is that that black box, the RBS Hall, really came in handy during quarantine. And really, and, and for not only storage, but for uh, expanded space to rehearse, because of course, Shout was rehearsing all throughout. So that was a good uh, good investment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it cost quite a bit of money. Um, well, we got a, um, a gift from a past actor, and he was actually um, the treasurer for Bremerton City. Uh, back in the late 60s, early 70s. And he was also um, senior financial officer of some bank. Um, anyway, he left us some money uh, when he passed. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't quite enough money, but he did <laughs> leave us some money. So we decided to build the RBS Hall. Uh, so, yeah, it was Robert B. Stewart that left us some money. And, uh, and then we added some extra money to it. And we got that extra space. And the, the, the theatre always wanted that. They always needed um, mm. a separate rehearsal room, you know. Because otherwise you were always on the stage and there was never anybody, you know, you never could actually then do more than one production at any one time. Or at least it would be very difficult. Whereas now we normally have somebody rehearsing in the black box whilst uh, we have a show actually on the stage at the same time. I I think I can see the value in having someone with your knowledge and skill set building sets. I've been on a few where you have stairs that are either uneven or nightmare, yeah, deeper than yep, or shallower than you're used to at home. Mm-hmm. So bringing the kind of standard that you're used to onto a stage definitely makes a, an actor think about things. They can concentrate on acting. They don't have to worry mm-hmm. about yeah. like, where's my next step going to land or, or something <laughs> like that. Act naturally. Yeah. Uh, the, the, going back to the the BCT thing. So we did the tour um, the other day and saw the incredible workshop that they have. Yeah. Were you involved since you're you're you know intimately involved with um, the set construction, especially over there, with organizing the workshop or kind of maturing it to where it is? Because it seems when you need a piece of lumber uh, for a particular thing, you know where to go and get it. Um, have you been uh, int- uh, involved in that? Yeah, you know, um, you know, as volunteers uh, and or as a trustee, yeah. Uh, every, whenever I'm doing a show, you end up putting extra time in doing something in the workshop, you know, organising or bringing. I, I've donated quite a bit of lumber to the to the theatre during the last uh, 10, 15 years. Um, you know, whenever I get surplus stuff from various jobs or stuff from uh, other clients. I tend to always just deliver it down to the theatre and uh, we make space for it. Then we've got um, lumber again for the next show uh, and it's very expensive. At the end of the day, yeah, you, you end up having to buy stuff to build stuff to, you know. And of course, you've got, there's not enough room to store stuff. So generally everything gets broken down thereafter. Um, although people like to save steps that are uneven and not built correctly. And, <laughs> You'll and never then, know when you oh, need it. Oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 40 years later, it's still there. <laughs> so your set design for Romeo and Juliet was recognized in 2016, and you've designed sets for everything from The Crucible, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Peter and the Starcatchers, to Agatha Christie's Go Back for Murder, which I was in, I think, right before, really, right. one of the last shows at BCT. Uh, great set. Had a fun helping with the build. 
What's been your most challenging show? Was it that Romeo and Juliet set, or has there been any others that really threw you? Um, most challenging. I mean, I'm, most sets are fairly challenging because you know you may have this broad outline of what you want intend to build, but then what's actually available in the workshop that we can actually use, mm-hmm. and that's that's really you know. And then okay, well, we haven't got that, so now we've got to go and buy it or find it or whatever, uh, and and so forth. So uh, a particular show. Uh, for the lesser-known players, uh, we were renting the Ericsson Theatre in Seattle uh, for Casa Valentina. And Casa Valentina is a, is a two-story set. Uh, there's an upstairs, downstairs, and there's scenes in, in both areas. Uh, but the theatre is in Seattle. So what did we do? We built the set in the director's backyard <laughs> <laughs> during the summer. And we got it to where we believed we had a working uh, skeleton. Uh, we then disassembled it, put it in a truck, and we only had uh, four days prior to opening to get the truck over there, get the thing built, then add everything else to it um, to complete the the piece. Uh, we didn't have quite enough time <laughs> for opening wow. night, as the critic actually mentioned <laughs> in, the, in, in, in his review of the play. Uh, the set doesn't quite look finished, <laughs> and he's absolutely right. Uh, we finally finished it the following day uh, prior to the next production. Well, one of the problems with renting somebody else's theatre and you're using their space, um, they actually use it during the day. Mm. And part of the contract was we actually had to manually move the whole set backwards um, 15 feet so they could actually use the, the front end of the stage area um, during the daytime. Oh, mercy. So it was absolutely, you know, the restrictions on us were, were quite quite something. But... Uh, uh, yeah, it was an amazing set when it was actually finally built uh, with two full staircases, one at the back, one at the front, <laughs> again, as per usual. Um, and they were square and standard height. They were square <laughs> and standard height. Of course well, they were. Well, well, the poor gentlemen uh, were, were actually dressed as ladies, um, so they were all in high heels too. Ooh. So we had, and they had these big head pieces on. So if you know the show, then uh, yeah, Harvey Weinstein, then you, you, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll understand the kind of thing that, uh, that it is. Uh, yeah, lots of lots of issues there. So good handrails, um, kickboards, and so forth. Wide enough. Uh, yeah, not these crazy pathetic uh, staircases you get at some of the community theatres. You know, how the hell do I get up there and down there without breaking my neck? <laughs> Especially in high heels. Oh yeah, uh, and, uh, yeah. So I would need an escalator if I was in high heels. I think <laughs> build one of those next or time. Tow rope or something. <laughs> yeah. If we ever do something like it hot, there'd better be an escalator. Yes, yeah. there you go. So you mentioned the different budgets that that theaters have and i think you know there's always designing in a pinch or on a, on a penny what is the most unique thing or most creative thing you've had to create from a set perspective whether it's as a result of budget constraints or something or just not having material to make something that you had to go and be creative we did a show um the harold pinter um one acts at bct uh, a few years ago and uh, one of those shows is called The Dumb Waiter. Basically, yeah, I turned up at the theatre this particular day, and I knew by the end of the day I had to have a dumb waiter built. <laughs> and for those that don't understand what a dumb waiter is, it's a, it's a moving box inside a box that goes up and down. And, An elevator uh, for stuff. Elevator for or stuff. Or little children in some cases. That's also true. Yeah. And, um, and then it needs to be incorporated within the set, uh, and it mustn't be seen to be in operation by the audience. And we were doing the show inside the black box. 
So we had height restrictions. Uh, we were quite lucky. Um, I found some old pulley wheels from the old fly system <laughs> that wow. were still uh, at the theatre. Like the ones that some, are on display now? Some, yeah, 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 exactly. One of those. <laughs> it was one of those. And uh, I managed to uh, uh, incorporate those. They were my pulleys for my for my ropes and chains. And by the end of the day, I had this thing built. And it was actually, I was I, I was quite amazed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we we saw those those pulleys. Yes. And if you and if you've seen our um, get to know a theater from BCT, you will have seen them too. And, and it's definitely something that's got to be challenging to work with. And the the problem with this particular show was we had one full set in front of the other set, hmm. which meant then we had to actually strike that dumb waiter between the two shows. So it had to be broken down into two parts there and then. In the interval. Because there were shorts, of course, yeah. <laughs> and, wow. And we're in the RBS hall, and we've only got a standard doorway if you're going back through into the theatre, or you've got to go out through the double doors. Um, thankfully, we, we managed to... Um, I can't, In fact, I can't quite remember what we did with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> we pushed it somewhere uh, out of the way. Um, and uh, But, yeah, you know, you, so you have these issues and these problems. So, okay, so it's great. It's all on set. It's ready to go. It works. But uh, once that, that play was over, we then had to, there and then, during the interval, take it apart and get rid of it, ready for the second play, which was a completely different set behind the set. So we had to strike that whole set, which was um, full wall crossing from corner to corner of the RBS hall. And how much time are we talking about in between shows? Just a 15-minute interval. Yeah. So, wow. that, so all that wall had to come down, that dumb weight had to be broken, and, and, and it weighed quite a bit as well. Uh, because it has to be sturdy to actually handle this thing, this box going up and down. So that was an inter- interesting... <laughs> Good answer. Wow. <laughs> well, I love some of the creativity you see. Uh, when we did Appointment with Death, the first show that we did together, there is an elevator. And the elevator is quite active. And mm-hmm. it was simply a, a small window that was backlit with a, a small piece of plywood that someone manually moved up and down. Mm-hmm. And it and Jeffrey Bassett, our director, was so proud of that thing. And it did. It gave it, you know, the illusion. Well, the illusion was made. It was right. really cool. Yeah. And it's just something that simple. You know, it's, it's got to be really fun. When, when I was um, brought into BPA to do Peter and the Starcatcher, uh-huh. and they had a wonderful um, set designer, an artistic set designer, had these beautiful sketched sketches, uh, all painted, of the Peter and the Starcatcher set. And uh, anyway, so I turned up on, you know, Monday morning, nine o'clock. Uh, okay, Gary, here's the sketches. So we need to build this, this, this and that. And I'm just looking. <laughs> looking, oh, my God. <laughs> um, right. Okay, I'll start with this boat. <laughs> that looks the most difficult thing that's going to take the longest. We better start there. I think, okay, I got that one. I think I can do that one. i got to do that. So we're out in the, the workshop there. And I'm like, so what have we got? What have we got? And uh, Deirdre Hadlock uh, said, Gary, oh, I think um, we've got some bendy board. And I'm like, what? <laughs> some bendy board. Um, the previous technical director used to, to used to buy it, particularly for these kinds of applications where mm. you had to build something that had a beautiful curve, which is what we needed. We needed a beautiful curved front section of this boat. And uh, it was about... $90 a sheet, which sounds really cheap today, considering the cost of uh, plyboard. Um, but uh, yeah, this bendy 
um, board, which was absolutely fantastic. Cut strips off, built up this planking, and lo and behold, by the end of the day, we had a boat. It was like... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's always surprising what you, what you end up with. Well, thank you again to our guest, Gary Fetterplace. Join us next week for the second half of our interview with Gary and more on his techniques for stagecraft and design. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We'd love to hear from you, so please join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Email us with thoughts and comments at heilmanandhaver at gmail.com. As always, thank you for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haver.